Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that has never ever had any Russian interference during its recording. To the best of my knowledge. I'm Tiernan Duyeb and this week the Prime Minister in Teenage Boy's bedroom punched into a hessian sack, Boris Johnson, has said we will have a significant return to normality by Christmas. Though he could have just meant that at that time of the year stocking up with food and staying indoors is the standard anyway. For the first time, a picture of Johnson with both his partner and son was released on the weekend, and baby truther conspiracy theorists took to the internet to say the image was photoshopped, or that the baby seemed weirdly big and why was it in a suit? Oh no, oh no, wait, oh, I see. Who can blame them for these beliefs when it's so confusing seeing Johnson in the same room as one of his offspring that it's bound to raise questions? But also, because how can we be sure of exactly what's true and what isn't anymore when it comes to the government? As the Intelligence and Security Committee are about to release the Russia report this week, should we believe the government, who've known the contents of this report since October, when they suddenly blurted out that, oh wait, Russia did interfere with the election that happened in November, and it was with the leaking of government documents on a UK-US trade deal we just didn't want to say before in case you realised that we could have done something about it, but didn't. Foreign Secretary and Medical Diagram of Penile Thrombosis, Dominic Raab, said he was almost certain that Russia tried it on, but almost certain for Raab could mean anything, as he's probably almost certain he knows where Russia is on a map, but if you showed him an atlas and asked him to point at it, he'd likely direct his finger at the window or bin or your face before his eyes went blank and he'd have to call an ambulance. But it was them Russians, no, not the ones who've donated tons of money to the Conservative Party, not those ones, don't ask about those ones, but the other ones that Labour were obviously, obviously in league with when they got the trade files uh, off Reddit, the leaked ones, where they'd been for months and no one had bothered looking. ITV journalists heard Rob's cries of, quick, look over there, while he scarpered, and they ran straight to former Labour leader and only human created by the Aeolian process, Jeremy Corbyn, to ask if he was complicit with the Russians, who obviously put all their might behind him to help him drag lose the election. Oh god everyone, better watch out for those Labour supporting Russian forces, as clearly they're the reason the opposition is currently charging forward in opinion polls to um, 10 points behind. 
Oh. Rob is also absolutely confident, which is pretty big for him, and up there with the time he managed to tie his own shoelaces, that Russian spies are trying to steal UK scientists' coronavirus vaccine research, which will be pretty disappointing for the Kremlin when they discover the UK government has probably mostly given the research contracts to one of Dominic Vizzini looks unwell Cummings' mates, who swears he cured himself of Covid by eating dog food. By the time you hear this, the Russia report will be released and there's every chance it says nothing of note, but has several large black lines through it, like an updated version of the Independent Group for Changes party logo. Do you remember them? No, me neither. Thing is, if the report is so unimportant, why has the government delayed its release since last autumn? And why did they try to parachute in Tory Shill, an early Romero creation Chris Grayling, to become chair of the Intelligence and Security Committee? Despite knowing that if you're going to parachute anyone, Chris Grayling would be the one that has elected out of the plane would realise he'd had a backpack full of packed lunch instead. In typical Grayling fashion, even when he's handed something on a plate, chances are high he'll fall into the plate face first. So as is absolutely perfect for someone trying to go for the chair of the intelligence and security, he was completely unaware of a plot by opposition MPs to give the role to Tom Hollander character Julian Lewis instead. I mean, of course he was, and that's the key quality that meant the government wanted Grayling to get the job. So if he was handed a piece of paper saying, definitive evidence Russia helped the Conservatives win the election, he'd be the idiot guaranteed to let it fly out of the open window and into the Thames while he was trying his best to sit down without missing the seat. Julian Lewis's prize for nabbing the top job? The Conservatives immediately removed the whip from him, because if they were poker players, every time they got a bad hand, they'd carefully hide it by screaming, fuck these cards, and stabbing the dealer. Lewis's new job means that the Russia report is finally being released, but it's okay because there's definitely nothing to see here and I'm sure it contains nothing of note, which is why Brexit pig dog Aaron Banks is threatening legal action against the committee if they release it, because if he had a bad hand in poker, he'd hide it by paying Russian intelligence to cover it up. It's not just Russia we have to be worried about, of course, as the government has decided that telecoms firm Huawei will be completely removed from all UK 5G phone networks by 2027 as they pose a national security risk. Namely, that if the contracts with them are kept, US President and methane-filled pufferfish Donald Trump will have a hissy fit and might nuke us while on the toilet. Really, if the government were ever consistent in their behaviour about anything, then like other national security risks, Education Secretary and Jar Jar Binks Gavin Williamson and Home Secretary and personification of when you get a sharp crisp stuck in your throat, Pretty Patel, Huawei would just get an even bigger role in the cabinet. Dominic Raab also accused China of gross and egregious human rights abuses against the Uyghur population, something the government are very angry about as the Chinese didn't buy weapons off them to do it. There are reports of forced sterilisation and detention of the Muslim group, as well as drone footage of people being blindfolded and led onto trains, which is pretty upsetting. And Rob said it was reminiscent of something not seen for a long time, because he hasn't yet visited Yarl's Wood. The UK is suspending its extradition treaty with Hong Kong after China imposed its national security bill on the territory, meaning that any Hong Kong resident that commits a crime in the UK will likely just get deported to a Caribbean country they'd never been to before instead. China are, of course, pissed by all of this, and plans for Chinese social media firm TikTok to move their HQ to London are now looking pretty uncertain, which is a shame because for a government that sacks an MP for getting a job that was rigged against them, you'd think they'd be into an app that's all about acting out. 
Who had war with Russia or China as their sweepstake for how 2020 will end? Well, not Boris Johnson, who thinks everything will be normal again soon and is insistent that he doesn't want a second national lockdown as, like a nuclear deterrent, he doesn't want to use it unless absolutely necessary. Though, unlike a nuclear deterrent, he doesn't want to spend £31 billion making sure it's ready and equipped, even if everyone says it's definitely not needed. He should really have compared it to having a family, in that it's not something he really wants to do or have responsibility for, but he will if there's a photo opportunity. Of course, it won't really be up to the Prime Minister whether there's a second lockdown, especially when it seems he stopped following the science weeks ago because he was too out of breath with post-Covid symptoms to keep up. Oh sure, it looks like he's trying to follow the science, with face masks being compulsory in shops from the end of this week, rather than from when he announced the measure. As you know, it takes around 11 days for everyone in the media to write op-ed pieces about why something no one remotely gives a fuck about doing is an impingement on their freedom before they run out of imagination after move on to something else. There is no science that says face masks work apart from all the science that says they do that I refuse to read. This is mask Nazism, though if everyone wore masks the Nazis wouldn't have known who wasn't Aryan and it may have saved lives. What if wearing a mask makes me forget what my own face looks like and I think I'm someone else and stop speaking to my family and never open my post? What if people think my face mask is bunting and start a village fair on my head and I get homemade jam in my eyes? What if I get confused and think my face mask is some pants and then wear a hat on my crutch and I'm banned from the park? What the then, you know, that sort of thing. Conservative MP and perfect casting for a sex pest in Midsummer Murders, Desmond Swain, said in the comments that having to wear face masks is a monstrous imposition. This from a man who wore blackface in public for fun. Swain might be in luck though as the rules for face mask wearing keep changing based on what it is that cabinet members remember to do. Inspiration for the 2004 horror film Creep, Michael Gove, stepped out of a pret without a face mask on, meaning that rather than say he and everything he does and stands for is wrong, the government changed the policy to mean that you don't have to wear a face mask when buying takeaway food. This is because Covid, as we know, likes to wait before serving up symptoms. This is vague guidance, as always, as what about if I go into a sit-down restaurant but I shove all the sachets of sauce into my pocket and leave? Face masks are also not needed for offices, a headline that I had to reread at least three times before I saw it correctly. Of course you don't need a face mask in an office because no one actually likes their colleagues and doesn't care if they die. I'm sure face masks will only be a policy for about a week at most before Dominic Raab is caught in a restaurant not wearing one and licking all of the cutlery. Boris Johnson said during a press briefing that scientific advisers don't make policy anyway, only MPs do, which is yet another glaring issue with our democracy, isn't it? So when Chief Scientific Advisor and Sad Harry Hill, Patrick Valance, told the Science and Technology Committee that there was no reason people should stop working from home, the very next day Boris Johnson told everyone to go back to work, which is rich coming from someone who barely turned up even before a pandemic. Parliament closes after Wednesday, so it's nice everyone else has to go to work just as MPs don't bother. And we'll all go back to normal from August the 1st. Johnson's main plan for this is just to hope for the best, which I've been doing since 2010. But hey, I'm sure this time's the winner. Valence also told the committee that he advised the government to lock down from March the 16th. Though, as we all know, the order for us to shut in didn't come until March the 23rd. A full... Oh, no, wait, sorry, everyone, sorry. Health Secretary and the My Dingaling Kid, Matt Hancock, said that actually we did lock down on March the 16th. You remember that, right? You remember March the 16th, when we totally did, and all those Cheltenham races, you know, the ones with thousands of people that Matt Hancock has investments with, as does the women in charge of Track and Trace, Dido Harding, you know those ones. They didn't happen, did they? Do you remember it didn't happen? None of those happened. And then thousands of people's lives were saved. And I clearly remember, I remember the day so well, because I was commenting on all the different colours of pigs that were in the sky. 
Maybe Matt Hancock isn't trying to gaslight us all and just has no clue of dates, which is why when announcing the lifting of the lockdown in Leicester from July the 24th, he said that schools could go back, which is going to be a shock to all the pupils and teachers who went on summer holidays the week before. It's not been his week, poor Matty, much like every week of his life, as his track and trace programme has been found to breach all GDPR data protection laws. While the government insists there's been no unlawful use of data, you do wonder if their main objection to Huawei was that it would be taking their job. Hancock has also had to order an urgent review into all the COVID death statistics, as it was discovered that the figures could include people who had tested positive for coronavirus, but then died of a completely different thing that the Conservatives have neglected to deal with properly, weeks or even months later. So, good news for the Department of Health in that deaths from coronavirus may be lower than the statistics suggested, which should make them about where they were once they get round to adding all the deaths that weren't acknowledged in the first place. Luckily, the Department of Health have stopped releasing any death stats until this matter is fixed, so you can fully expect the inquiry to conveniently last for about two to three years. The other potentially good news is that the government have signed off on deals for 90 million doses of promising vaccines that are being developed by various companies, though it's hard not to see the government's record of procuring PPE and wonder if those companies are either all owned by Dominic Cummings's NAN or all the vials will turn out to be filled with water that's been blessed by someone who was ordained online. Or maybe they'll just give all the vaccines to Chris Grayling and he'll manage to slip and inject them into his eye. So, with Covid death stats being non-Covid, impartial committees having rigged elections, ministers insisting we don't know which dates things happened, security threats all over the place and science definitely not being followed, who's to say that is a picture of Boris Johnson's baby son after all? I'm almost certain there's every chance little Wilfred could be the product of Russian interference. In other news, yet another inquiry is being delayed by the government, this time into Pretty Patel being a big old bully, which just doesn't seem likely, does it? Doesn't seem likely. Apparently it's due to a possibility that the findings of the report may be embarrassing, and I assume they mean for the Home Secretary, but considering she wasn't phased when it was discovered she breached national security and ministerial code meeting Israeli officials while on holiday a few years ago, there's a high chance she's just proud of being a total shit to her staff, and that actually it's embarrassing for us as a country that she's in government. The only thing Patel is actually embarrassed about right now is the High Court allowing teenage ISIS bride Shemima Begum to return to the UK to appeal the Home Office's decision to strip her of British citizenship because the classic British government solution to a problem they created is to give it to someone else entirely and then blame them for it instead. Pretty Patel had previously said there was no way Begum would be allowed back in the country and the Home Office are now appealing her right to appeal, but the High Court said that Shemima has the right to a fair trial. Maybe Patel doesn't want Begum to appear in British courts, as it means they have to find a way to open them for that to happen. Of course, none of this would have happened at all if Shemima had just been smart and only met ISIS officials while on holiday. The Education Secretary has set out strict guidelines for universities that are facing bankruptcy to receive government bailout loans, and these guidelines include scrapping any low-value courses that lead to low-skilled jobs. Bad news for any politics departments, then. Universities must also comply with legal duties to secure freedom of speech, which is a scary ideological demand. And how can you have freedom of speech when it costs students £9,000 a year just to hear some lectures? The UK economy has rebounded more slowly than expected, but that is what happens with rebounds after a sudden harsh breakup and an insistence to fuck everything possible without any forethought to the long-term damage it will cause all parties. I should know. As support grows for Scottish independence, Boris Johnson is going to visit Scotland to make a stronger case for the union, because obviously the best advocate for better together is a Brexit-loving family dodging twat. This is a man who it was revealed this week that in 2005, Johnson said he loved fox hunting in a semi-sexual way, which is typical of someone who loves the chase, but once he's got what he wants, has to destroy it. 
It's weird that anyone would trawl back through Boris Johnson's bullshit that far when every day there's something else as bad, such as during Prime Minister's questions this week when he responded to a question about bereaved families by saying that Keir Starmer has more briefs than Calvin Klein. Whereas Johnson's just a man whose record has bigger stains than the borough of Surrey and all his policies come up short. Thank God Parliament has its holiday from this week. I think it may be for all of us and not just MPs. And lastly, former Chancellor and misshapen prune Philip Hammond has become an advisor to the Saudi government. Based on that time in 2017, when he said driving trains was so easy even women could do it, I'm not sure he'll last long in the job. Buongiorno, pod people. Uh, how goes you in this summer so 2020 that every time the sun tries to peek through, the sky insists on clouding it over with something darker and far more depressing? I started running a few weeks ago and um, doing the couch to 5k thingy, uh, which means I'm currently fit enough that were I to be chased by a scary monster, um, I could escape measly if they kept stopping after 90 seconds, three minute intervals and an American man kept shouting encouragement at me throughout. Um, I haven't really done any exercise at all since becoming a dad because sleep deprivation meant I was out of breath, simply lifting up my mug full of coffee for the first time that day. Um, but thankfully my daughter's sleeping and lockdown in general, um, all of it now just sort of is bored me into attempting again or mainly it bored me into eating crisps solidly for three months uh, and then realizing if i didn't try to run some of that off uh, my new normal would be being crane lifted out of the flat if i wanted to go shopping um, so anyway i'm on week four of this thing you've probably all done it everyone's done it haven't they everyone's done the app loads of people started running weeks and weeks before i did um but i have to admit that i don't really feel that i need the input from the narrator um, i've chosen michael johnson as he says uh, he's got the sort of voice where i expect him to say i'm disappointed in you you know if i fail i'm disappointed in you and that would really break me I wouldn't be able to take the guilt um, but I don't think I need him I don't think I need the narrator because instead I just remind myself that every time I'm outside running I'm not having to do childcare and that really keeps me going um, although I suppose it could also incentivize me to stand still in a park and just not go home for a bit and ah uh, shit ruined it might not do the app anymore might not bother with me at five uh, I don't like talking about exercising as you find that people always like to tell you how much quicker um, they do it or how much less they look like a sweaty bow bun in shorts um, when they run but you know I've literally nothing else to update you on this week um, I've got nothing else nothing else going on in my life I now run I search for jobs online that may somehow accept somebody who spent 17 years shouting at people in rooms 17 years this week 17 years I've been doing comedy I never thought I'd outlive the industry but I have basically I think that means I've won that's how it works isn't it if the industry dies before you do basically undefeated um, but that's it that's my life looking for jobs and um, parenting um, which is a uh, which is fun. Uh, my daughter has just recently started saying that any music she hears that she doesn't know who it's by, she just goes, oh, that's Jeremy Raspberry, uh, which I think is amazing. And she obviously made it up. But then also, I'm quite old and I keep worrying, is that just like a really cool underground DJ that I've never heard of? Am I that out of the loop? Jeremy Rasby playing some bangers near you. Um, but yeah, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to apply for jobs and it's very weird trying to write a serious CV uh, when my life's been comedy. I just have to keep fighting all instincts not to add like fucking exhausted at the end of a list of skills or adding how I once in a bar in Boulder, Colorado uh, around 2004, I did a trick shot in pool completely by accident but I said it was on purpose and uh, I mean I didn't have to buy a round and two men called me a fucking hustler and slammed their shoes on the floor and walked out. They wouldn't play me so... Um, that sort of stuff should get me a job, right? Right? Hmm? 
Uh, and a driving gig that was meant to be this week, one of those driving comedy gigs, um, and even that got pulled, uh, and two of the driving franchises have been completely pulled now, um, due to local lockdown fears making insurance costs too high. So uh, that's fun, isn't it? Saying that, I was sort of ambivalent about shouting at a load of people in cars from a stage, when I usually do that while in my own car. It's not normally jokes, it's just sort of angry swears about how shit their lack of indicating is or how badly they've parked, so probably wouldn't have gone well anyway. Waffle, waffle, waffle. You are here. Thank you for listening. And thank you especially this week uh, to Joe, somebody and Baldy for donating to the Kofi account. And if you should fancy doing the same and basically keeping me alive at the moment, then please throw a few pounds to ko-fi.com forward slash bro. Or even do a monthly recurring payment, um, which you can do on Kofi. Or you can join the patreon.com forward slash bro, which you can now do in pounds and euros and everything. It's very exciting. Um, if you can't do that, don't worry. I, I can't do it right now. I can't support any uh, podcast or anything right now um so i totally understand uh, in which case please give the show a review on your podcasting platforms and just generally spread the word the word being god no i'm only joking uh spread the word about this podcast the word being pod that's better right um a few things this week uh firstly um i thought the russia report was out today monday it's not out tomorrow, uh, Tuesday, or when you hear this yesterday, or when you hear this four years ago. Um, so this episode will probably go out of date within seconds, but hey, what is new with this show? Um, and what you have in the middle bit is where I was going to talk about the Russia report, but it is my frantic attempt to talk about anything else, so Brexit fallout is back. Um, speaking of which, next week's episode is going to be the last one for a little bit, and I'm not sure how long that little bit will be. Uh, I normally take a summer break for August, because of Edinburgh or whatever else, um, just because Parliament's sort of on recent um, but obviously in the current situation I aim to take that time off I need a bit of a break from my brain and to find out what on earth I'm doing in my career now all the comedy has died so probably two to four weeks depending on all the shit that goes down so um, whatever happens I'll probably do some summer updates some little bonus episodes but there'll be no full episodes like this through August hopefully we'll see what happens um, and then when the podcast does return um, which will definitely return before uh, Parliament returns in September um, it'll be nearly episode 200 this is episode technically 197 so it'll be like uh, there'll be one next week 198 there'll be two episodes one episode back and then it'll be 200. Um, I'm making this more complicated uh, than it is. Episode 200 is like three episodes away. What do you fancy for that? It's a big one. Big one, 200. It'll be like four years of doing this show. A shitload of material that lasts all of a day. Uh, episode 200, what do you want? Lots of MP descriptions through the years, like I did for episode 100. Um, I put a poll online, barely anyone bothered looking at it, but a popular option seemed to be getting someone to interview me for once, even though I can't imagine I'll say anything remotely interesting for that. Um, would you want to send in questions for me if I sorted that out uh, otherwise um, Rob on the Facebook group suggests I get a panel of people and do my own version of an actually sensible question time uh, where I can ask them all sorts of things about the future um, maybe try and find something hopeful in there what takes your fancy let me know at all the usual places um, and I'm happy for you to let me know via a few unusual places too if you want to say send it to me on an owl or do some sky writing totally your call on this week's show yes there is an awful lot of very serious stuff going on a lot of people are being neglected a lot of people are having a terrible time um, but I talked to Dr Oliver Double about the state of the comedy circuit because I am really selfish and I wanted to talk about my plight uh, what are you going to do about it yeah yeah let's take this outside which you can do as it's a podcast you can take it where you like well not as warm as it looks is it see your fault bloody 2020 um, so that is what it's a slightly selfish interview this week but um, I hope you'll find it very very interesting and the middle bit is just a Brexit fallout highlighting some loose ends like a particularly shitty hairdresser or unreliable boy scout. 
state of the world today in its coronavirus ridden weird head populist rubber bladder leaders climate change fuckery horror isn't really a laughing matter, which is why this podcast is becoming worse generally. But it's even more of a reason that we need to find things to laugh about within it or outside of it or just somewhere, because, you know, if we don't laugh, we'll just cry. Frankly, I can't do a podcast of just crying because I do that weird snorting thing and it'll hit some really horrible noise peaks for your ears. But comedy, in some form or another, has been pretty important in helping to cope with shit situations throughout history. From the jesters who were able to openly mock the monarch while no one else could, to the surreal Dadaist movement in the early 20th century that mocked the idea of a capitalist society, which could still do it now. Or the British alternative comedy scene in the 80s, where acts such as Alexi Sale and Ben Elton, among many, many others, became the sort of spoken word punk movement against Margaret Thatcher's conservative government. It might be questionable whether or not today's comedy output in the UK is really taking on the man, or if instead no one really understands the pun in the title of Mock the Week. But the fact is, the UK comedy scene is in a very, very dire situation, with a recent Live Comedy Association report saying that 77.8% of comedy clubs are set to close within 12 months if there isn't support for them, and 45% of acts thinking about giving up as quite a few of them have been unable to receive any support at all. While live comedy has often proved to be recession-proof, much like theatre or dance or music, it definitely isn't virus-proof, um, having people packed into small windowless rooms and trying to make them laugh. But while some of those other art forms have now had funding allocated, it's still unclear whether Oliver Dowden wants to save the comedy industry or those who work in it, which may be because he's never experienced people laughing with him. So, this week, I'm being very, very selfish and talking about the industry that I'm part of. Um, you might question as to how comedy is political or as important as the many other areas that have been hit by the Rona. And I'm aware that I had Dan Rebellato on only recently to talk about theatres and performance spaces. But hear me out. Comedy is different, right? Because in this age of wanging on about the fabricated idea of cancel culture, stand-up comedy is still very much raw freedom of speech in action and an area of culture that, while it still has massive diversity issues, on the surface it's still far more open to everyone than some of the more elitist art forms. But look, I'm not going to tell you about why it'd be nice if I still had a job. Uh, I don't think you'd listen to that. So instead, I got my former lecturer and good friend, the reason I do or rather did stand up comedy and a certified doctor of comedy, Dr. Oliver Double, to let me interview him for this podcast. Um, Ollie is brilliant. He's written four books on stand up comedy and its history, including his latest on the alternative comedy scene in the 80s. He teaches drama and comedy at the University of Kent, established the British Stand Up Comedy Archive and very importantly, uh, did or still does, did stand up himself. I asked Ollie all about why comedy is facing an existential threat, why on earth it deserves to be saved, and also some questions about the future of higher education too. Okay, a couple of quick things before we get to the interview. Uh, me and Ollie spoke uh, before the government clarified that comedy does qualify under their 1.57 billion bailout scheme. They wouldn't call it an art. They said it was like a cultural performance or something a bit vague. But anyway, their bailout scheme is very, very unclear how venues or acts are going to benefit from it at all. Um, also, the announcement that live performance can happen from August the 1st, um, that happened later in the week after our chat. But most venues can't survive on a capacity of 20 to 30% uh, audience uh, using social distancing measures. They can't pay their rent. They can't pay their staff. So it's quite a useless uh, thing that Boris has announced. I think mainly it just allows him to not bail things out and say, well, you could have opened and supported yourself. Um, also, this chat was before the government's bizarre demands for universities to demonstrate their commitment to free speech to receive bailout funds. I don't think any of that makes a difference, uh, hopefully, to our conversation. Um, I've also edited out about 25 minutes of this chat as we rattled on for ages and ages, um, but I'll release that later in the week or next week as a bonus episode with some of the stuff that I also edited out of my chat with Nikki Branch a few weeks back too. Right, uh, enough of all that ramble. Here is Ollie. 
Right, Ollie, uh, this is uh, slightly selfish, me having you in to do this, I think, because I I feel like I know uh, what some of the answers are going to be, but you're going to say it's a lot more clarity than me. Um, why is the British comedy circuit facing, well, an existential threat, as I believe you, you tweeted the other day? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the simple truth is that, that live comedy is something that happens between a performer and an audience, and they kind of need to be in the same place for it to really, really work. Uh, and that's to work artistically or economically, actually. And because of the lockdown, basically all comedy clubs had to stop and there's no immediate prospect of them reopening right now. Okay, so that's that's the first thing. The second thing is the comedy industry has been amazing in its response, like the number of online gigs, live streams, and, and experiments with sort of open air gigs and things like that that have been going on is, is unreal. But it's really hard to make those things pay. It's really hard to, I mean, if you have a, a live stream and, and you've got a collection, a virtual collection bucket, it's really still hard to make money. And I think as well, you know, even if you've got one where it's a paid entry, you know, the, the, the chances are that you're going to be paying a small amount of money to get in. And uh, that's probably not, and, and then that's for the whole, like if you've got a whole bunch of people there, that's one that you pay in. Whereas if those, let's say you have four people watching, each of those might be paying 12, 15 quid to get in, as opposed to paying, let's say, six for all four. So I think it's really, really difficult to, it, it, you know, I think some people just look at something that's new and shiny and go, oh, isn't it amazing? Stand up online, it's going to improve accessibility and things like that, which definitely it will. But whether it's a sustainable model uh, economically is a whole other question. Plus, the other thing is, it's I, I've done one of those gigs, and it's kind of weird, uh, like performing to your laptop, and getting getting, <laughs> yep, getting yep. no response. Like it, it, it lowers the stakes somewhat, and it's really hard to know whether anything's working. And uh, it, it, it's it's interesting, and I think it's a positive develop, development in terms of, yes, it does open things up for people who might not be able to get to gigs for whatever reason. But on the other hand, it's not going to save comedy, not at the moment anyway. I mean, one, one of the things, you know, and um, I, I I love talking to you, Ollie, so I'm very pleased to have you on the podcast. But one of my worries about speaking to you is that with all the things that are going wrong in the world right now, with all the industries that are failing and, you know, the whole, you know, the whole of society seeming... I, I, like it needs to change whether it will for the better or worse is it, debatable right now um does comedy deserve to be saved i say this as someone i know it does i feel like it should because i need a, a living but you know is, is it you know is it is it the most important industry that we need to bail out right now is it a necessary part of the economy I think it is, yeah. I mean, I think I think for all kinds of different reasons, beyond the cultural ones. I mean, one of the things that's difficult about talking about comedy is it's quite difficult to get reliable figures, but certainly there was something published in the early period of lockdown which estimated the um, the uh, not just the turnover, but the profit, I think, from, from live comedy in the UK as uh, 500 million. Uh, so that's a lot of money right there. But then you break it down and you think, well, okay, how many comedians are there working? And I know somebody who did a, a, a survey of the number of working comedians, and he had it at something like four, five hundred. But there are other estimate, you know, estimates that say it might be thousands. And even if you go beyond the comedians, then you've got the people who work in comedy beyond that, people who work for agencies, people who work for venues, uh, you know, photographers, publicists, graphic designers, you know, all those people are involved. And then you, you go a step above that and you kind of go, well, all these people who are getting Netflix specials or developing sitcoms or sketch shows for, 
streaming or TV or radio, all of those people, well, many of those people anyway, uh, got at least some of their experience doing comedy, right? On doing live comedy, being stand-ups or being in sketch groups or whatever it might be. Um, so, so there's all of that. And then there's the fact that, that once you get to the level of touring comics, so I think it's over 45% of theatres that have comedy as part of their programming. This was from the Live Comedy Association's recent survey. So it's nearly half of those theatres that programme comedy as part of their general programme. It, it brings in a greater percentage of their, their turnover than it is a percentage of their programming. So let's say comedy's 20% of their programming. They're making way over 20% of their money from comedy. So in other words, it's cross-subsidising other interesting work. So the, I think the thing is, comedy's been taken for granted because historically it's been unfunded, right? Historically, comedy has not received public funding. It's not deemed often to be an art. So, for example, in 2009, somebody applied for an uh, Arts Council grant for a, a, a local comedy event and was told, well, we can't do this because it's not art and, and we only fund blah, 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 blah. But I mean, that's, that's irrational if you stop and think about it. I mean, I mean, Peter Brook, for example, in, in his classic text, The Empty Space, it starts with a thing where it says, somebody walks across an empty space and somebody else watches them. And that's all that you need for, for the, to, to count as theatre. Well, by that token, stand-up is theatre because people do a lot more than walk across the stage, right? I mean, you'd have to be pretty talented to be able to do a stand-up act <laughs> consistent of walking across the stage. So, so it's, it's irrational to think that it's not art. It's irrational to think it's not theatre. Uh, and I think that it, it hasn't perhaps hasn't needed to be funded before. But then again, what's really interesting, if you go back to the early history of the modern comedy circuit, so you go back to the 1980s, I mean, it started really in 1979, the opening of the Comedy Store, the foundation of a group called Alternative Cabaret. And then after that, you had the comic strip and you had the Earth Exchange, all these other venues opening up. But actually, what really expanded the circuit was a venue, was a, was a venue and then a, very quickly a circuit called Cast New Variety, run by a theatre company, Cast, which is an acronym for Cartoon Archetypical Slogan Theatre. And they've been a theatre company since the mid-60s, left-wing theatre company. And basically, they started programming what was then called Alternative Cabaret. So it wasn't just comedians. In fact, they, they specialised in non-comedians. They had a lot of sketch, double acts bands, musicians, singers, and so on. And incredibly diverse as well. A lot of women on the bill, a lot of people of colour on the bill, that kind of thing. And anyway, the reason I'm mentioning them is because they received, they started Cast New Variety on an Arts Council grant that they repurposed. It was supposed to be funding <laughs> a play. And they decided to do this instead for good reasons. The Arts Council were furious, said you can't have any more money. <laughs> So they went to the GLC under Ken Livingston and they got £25,000, uh, which was an enormous amount of money then. And they, the following year, they got even more. And, and they made a little circuit around London. So suddenly, in fact, they made, I think about a year in, they had two circuits, two circuits of three gigs. So suddenly, you know, you, people are doing weekends and things like that. And that undoubtedly helped to, 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 you know, that public funding helped to grow the circuit that we have now. People have forgotten that. And in fact, it's sort of been it's a little bit been written out of history because there were key figures in the early days of alternative comedy, as we'd now call it, who uh, didn't like the idea of public funding for very interesting and good reasons. Like Tony Allen you know, is an anarchist and he sort of felt that people should pay for what they get and that it could be much more responsive. You'd have to wait for the results of a, of a grant to go in and things like that. 
Um, and Alexis Sale, again, didn't, you know, for various reasons, didn't think that public funding was the way to go. And I think a lot of people who'd been involved in sort of publicly funded left-wing theatre felt that there was a sort of contradiction there between trying to bring down the state, but expecting the state to pay for it and things like that. Uh, and also that that, that theatre could be perhaps, I think that some of them the felt that it could be a bit po-faced and, not, not, and that perhaps stand-up was a better way of dealing with it. So there were all these good reasons why people were against public funding. But the fact is, cast new variety, huge. In fact, they did a thing when, when the GLC was being, was under threat of um, abolition, in fact, when it was you know, due to be abolished, they did a thing called the 32 London Borough Tour, right? And it lasted, I think, over a month. And, and, it, and it had gigs in every one of the 32 London Borough. And, and it was really a kind of campaigning thing so that you could go along and have a night of, you, you might see Benjamin Zephaniah, you might see the brilliant comic Pauline Melville, you might see, I don't know, the mid juleps doing a cappella. And you would also be getting leaflets about campaigns to sort of prevent abolition and so on. So, the, the, you know, the history of modern comedy and campaigning politics and also public funding is really old. So when I know that there's some scepticism amongst people I've talked to in comedy about, well, how would it work? If How would we get public funding? How would it help us? Well, it would help like it would help any other branch of the performing arts, I think. It would mean that while clubs have been under massive financial pressure, they could put in for a grant which would help them perhaps take take them through that and help them to expand and thrive again, especially small clubs. You see, that, that is one of my concerns in that um, I know there's quite a lot of uh, comedians who aren't getting the, the self-employed financial support. They don't qualify for it. Or I know several who were advised to become a limited company and then that means they can't get anything now. But but there's also this huge problem of, I think that the live comedy reports said it was over 77% of clubs will shut within a year. And so if comedy does return, even if we've been supported personally at the time, we'll have absolutely nowhere to perform in anymore. That's right. Yeah, I think it was 77.8% was the figure. I mean, that's terrifying uh, within a year. Uh, and we, we, don't, we, we genuinely don't know when they're going to be able to open again. So it, that, that is a massive worry. But um, I think one of the things is that, that you know, uh, the, the current circuit, as I say, back in the 80s, grew through public funding. Hopefully, you know, that could happen again, even if, even if clubs go, maybe more could come to to take their place. I mean, certainly it's more likely to happen if there is public funding than, than if there isn't. And the fact is the government's pledged this 1.57 billion to help arts and culture. But my worry is that, that might, the vast majority of that might go to the big hitters, you know, the kind of Royal Shakespeare's, uh, Royal Opera House, things like that. Um, and, and the orchestras and all that. Uh, um, and not that it shouldn't go to those, of course it should. Um, but, but uh, and even if they go, kind of go, well, we're also going to support smaller grassroots arts. My strong fear would be, well, comedy's always looked after itself. It can look after itself again. But the fact is they're not looking at the big picture. Comedy not only makes a massive cultural and economic contribution to the UK, but also it helps to cross-subsidise those other things because of what I was saying about um, you know, the role of comedy within theatre programming more generally. One thing that you just touched on there, which is what I want to ask you more about, is we've kind of given the case for economy-wise why comedy should be saved. But culture-wise, like is is comedy, uh, and again, I'm asking you this with a, a vague idea of what your answer may be, but in terms of uh, culture, how important is comedy to culture and society? Does it, you know, does it have a role in, in, in British life that, that we need to save? I think it absolutely does. I mean, I think for a start, I think it's, I think the, the I mean, I've written, a, I've written various things, as you know, and I wrote a book or, or, or well, I 
co-edited a book, but I wrote the introduction in one of the chapters a few years ago on popular performance. So we were looking at things like uh, music hall, variety theatre, um, clowning, um, magic, stand-up, sketch, you know, a, a lot of different things. Um, but um, one of the things um, that, that, that's interesting about that is you look at why those things are not seen as theatre. Why there's this divide, between historical divide between, you know, things that are recognised as theatre, doing plays, good literary plays, and things that are other forms of performance. Why is that that thing? Why is that legitimate theatre and illegitimate theatre? And actually, it, it's just historical. It's just actually a lot of it's snobbery. You know, I think that you can go back to the early 20th century. In 1912, there was a case where a theatre manager took the manager of a music hall to court for breaking the law. And the reason, what he, the reason he said that they were breaking the law was he said, this actor, this act that you put on, they are plays, right? He said they are stage plays and therefore they should be subject to the Lord Chamberlain's office regulation. And they weren't, right? And the two acts that he mentioned were a ventriloquist, and the music hall comedian Little Titch, right? And the, anyway, he didn't win. But the point was that was that was actually a kind of tribal war. That was commercial pressure. You know, that was somebody who ran a theatre doing plays who was who was who felt jealous of the music halls because of the number of people they could get in because they were more popular. And one of the reasons they were more popular was because they could serve drink and food while people were. Uh, watching the shows or at least um yeah they could at one point anyway uh, the reason i mentioned that is because that's that's symptomatic of this divide between theater and everything else and of, the everything else includes comedy but stop and think about it for a second if we recognize that acting is an art how much more of it is an art to be able to get up on stage and perform material you have yourself written or devised how, how could that be less of an art than acting, where, generally speaking, you're saying words that somebody else has written for you? Uh, so, so, I mean, I think there's that. And then in addition to that, there's just the enormous popularity of stand-up. I mean, I'm not actually a huge fan of, of stadium comedy because, for me, it's a bit anonymous and it doesn't even feel like you're part of an audience. But stand-up is, is big enough to fill an arena. You know, if that's the case, then how could it not be worth saving? And also, like, you know, who's going to be doing the telly? Who's going to be doing the Netflix specials? Who's going to be doing radio, you know, if all the comedians have to leave the industry and give up? You know, who, who are these people who are going to do, who's going to fill that gap? Is, is there also a thing, you know, it's one of the things that I saw quite a lot of people uh, talk about, especially when there was the hashtag of Safe Live Comedy uh, going on last Thursday um, to try and promote but saving us really um but a lot of people sort of saying actually it's a lot more and i say this carefully because i know comedy is not representative enough yet and there's issues with that but it is still more representative than a lot of other art forms in that there are uh more bame comedians i mean still again not enough but there are starting to be more female comedians more bame comedians there are also a lot more working class comedians and it's an outlet for working class comedy which compared to the elitism of theater and other art forms um, you know, th there's a lot more access to it for for comedians from sort of uh, sort of deprived backgrounds. Um, is is that and that that's obviously a very important factor, isn't it? I agree. I mean, I think I think comedy has a long way to go. I think you know, uh, uh, I, I think that um, people of color, I think I think that women, are, you know, people in lots of I mean, people with disabilities, all kinds of different groups that probably need more. But I'd, I'd also add that. 
well, that's another case for public subsidy. Because if you had, for example, a club which sought to put on women of colour, like the sort of thing Sophie Duke is doing, that kind of thing, then those things, you, you know, those things would be, could grow better with public subsidy, right? Uh, so they, in other words, what I'm saying is that if the government steps in to help comedy, we can even improve on where it's got to, because it, I definitely, there has been a massive improvement in live comedy, I think, in terms of representation of different groups. But also, if the government helps to save it, then we can even press forward with that. Is um is is comedy a useful tool for for sort of political commentary and and uh, you sort of mentioned social commentary earlier as well? But you know one of the big complaints of recent years, especially from a lot of right wing commentators, is all comedy's left wing, um, which is I find surprising because there's always this you know twelve different comedians saying they're the only right wing one in <laughs> on the circuit. But you know, is it is it a useful tool in political commentary, and why does it appear to be sort of mostly left wing? Well. If you ask the question, where are all the right-wing comedians, as boring newspaper pundits like to do every so often, thinking it's original thought, which it isn't. But if if, if the question is, where are all the right-wing comedians, answer in the 1970s. Right? Because if you go back to the 1970s, it was very rare for a comedian to express an overt political affiliation at all, certainly not in their act. Um, and when they did one, it was normally a conservative one. And in fact, you know, you could go back and look in newspaper archives and find, I don't know, Les Dawson or something coming out or Bob Monkhouse coming out for the Tories at election time, that kind of thing. And what happened was alternative comedy. Basically, comedy was completely reinvented. And go back to what I was saying before about 1979. And the people who pioneered it tended to be on the left. So people like Alexi Sale, Jim Barkley, Pauline Melville, uh, Tony Allen, uh, Andy Zalator and others uh, were very much off the left. A lot of them have been in, in left-wing theatre companies. And one of the things that, stand, that alternative comedy was committed to was non-sexist, non-racist, was the idea of let you know, comedy at that point was full of jokes about uh, immigrants and uh, people of different uh, ethnicity and, and women and wives and mothers-in-law and gay people and what have you. And it, it said, that's not what we want to be. And I'm not saying that that it completely succeeded in every single case. You could probably find examples and go, well, that was a bit racist or whatever. But the fact is, it was a, it was a it was a a thing where it was normally upheld, and and it was also a thing that comedians took on themselves. They nobody told them to do that. They wanted to do that, and so what happened was even for the less kind of political comedians, that it, it tended to be people from the left who were attracted to it, and then it that, that just became a sort of default thing. Now, the critique of that is, well, OK, there were all these left wing comedians in the 1980s, but Thatcher kept getting elected. Well, and, and therefore the argument is, well, it had no effect. It was completely useless. It was a waste of time. I would argue against that. I would argue against that in various ways. One of them would be there's a huge realm of possibilities between toppling the government and no effect whatsoever. Right. You know, you know, it, just because you don't topple the government, that's quite a high bar to, to set. The fact is. That, that comedians made a difference. Uh, they, they might not have made a uh, kind of uh, a decisive difference, but they certainly had an effect, I think, on, on audiences. I mean, not least, just the, the, the amount of money that they raised through anti-nuclear gigs, uh, minor support gigs, Save the GLC gigs, whatever else it was. That, like, they raised a lot of money. 
uh, and that money wouldn't have been there. So, for example, let's say there'd been less money uh, to support the miners, then probably the miners' strike, even though it was eventually unsuccessful, it probably would have been unsuccessful sooner, things like that. But also, I mean, I remember going to see Ben Elton, who's not necessarily a, a, a comedian who's well-remembered now. People, I think, tend to think of him as a bit of a sellout. But I have to say, I was a huge fan. And I remember going to see him a few times in the, towards mid to late 80s. And I remember a particular occasion where I went out, it had been 1987. I was living in Sheffield. And, and it just felt like there was no way we could beat Thatcher. It felt like she'd been there forever. And that everything was turning to the right. Everything was more business orientated. Yeah, you know, everything was coming out of public ownership. Uh, the miners had been beaten. It, you know, it, it was horribly warlike. It was a horrible atmosphere. And I remember hearing Ben Elton talking about things, even stupid things, like an advert that was on at the time that was an advert for a particular company. And as he put it, it wasn't even asking you to buy anything. It was just, it was just like corporate boasting, basically. And he said, what they're saying is we've got all the money and you haven't fuck off. And I remember just thinking that was the funniest thing because I'd sort of been annoyed by that too. But I also remember walking out of the theatre at the end of the night and going, I'm not the only person. There are other people out there who think like this. And that's a very kind of strengthening thing. I think people talk about the idea that if you're preaching to the converted, that that's a useless thing to do. But as Jeremy Hardy once said to me, have you not thought about the whole history of organised religion? is based on preaching to the converted. Preaching to the converted is very useful because it sends people out of the church at the end of the service feeling strengthened in their faith. And it's the same with politics. And let's be honest, if we didn't think that the comedy could have an effect, why are we bothered about racist comedy? Because if, if comedy doesn't have an effect, it doesn't, you know, somebody can go up there and be as racist as they like. It doesn't matter. It's not going to have an effect. They're only preaching to the converted. They're only playing to other racists. But actually we worry that those racists will be bolstered in their beliefs and maybe go out there and, and be more racist right well if you if that if you accept that logic you also accept the logic that by doing political comedy you are having some sort of an effect the effect might be small it might be marginal but the idea that comedy uniquely has no ability to change anything or, ha- or change opinions or affect the way we think is ridiculous we know that films do it we know that theatre does it we know songs can do it even you know, so why wouldn't comedy be able to do it? Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Uh, we'll be back with Ollie in a minute, but first... Richard Parliament has its recess from the 22nd of July, this Wednesday, until the 1st of September, and rightly so, eh? I mean, it's not like there's anything much for them to do, is there? Obviously, MPs do still work, and the government is meant to still work, but it hasn't to date. And I'm certain that before they can even lock up the Commons and send everyone home, Boris Johnson will be off on holiday at the expense of a lobbyist pal. Something that I'd usually be angry about, but let's face it, it's so shit having him here that someone willingly paying to make him go away for a bit actually sounds like what we need. I'll be looking at the Russia report in next week's show because it isn't out just yet as I record this, so I thought this week might be a good time to look at some of the Brexit measures that have been clarified, like butter, and others that are sort of more thinly spread notions, like butter. Talks resume on Tuesday, and spokesperson for Number 10 swears that Britain will continue to engage constructively with the EU, but that assumes they've been engaging constructively already, which they haven't really. While the politicians aren't doing much of a good job, though, financial regulators, the European Securities and Markets Authority and Britain's Financial Conduct Authority, have cracked open their memoranda of understanding in case of a no-deal, meaning that all them stocks and funds will be safe. So don't worry, everyone. The rich will be fine. I know you are concerned. I know you're worried that a no-deal might leave all of us in the shit, but I wanted to reassure you that billionaires will still not be in this together. So, uh, whew, lucky. There you go. Still, though, it does mean that eating the rich might be an option for the rest of us, as there's a huge risk of food shortages, with EU trade permits only being available for 2,088 businesses if there's a no-deal, rather than the 8,348 businesses that have had them for this year. 2,088 uh, is the maximum amount of permits that would be allowed by the European Conference of Ministers of Transport Scheme if there was a no-deal, and it basically means a whole load of trucks won't be trucking, which means less food, medicine or sneaky, dangerous border crossings for you. Still, it does mean that there might be a lot of free parking at the £705 million costing 12 lorry parks in Kent, so should you want to have a cheap trip to Dover to see the pub that someone I knew at uni used to buy weed and knock off DVDs in, then you can knock yourself out. Now, to be fair, might be more fun than going to Dover. For the businesses that do manage to trade, it's estimated that border checks are going to cost £13 billion overall, as companies will have to fill in an extra 400 declaration forms a year, because it seems there's a lot of admin involved in taking back control. You can't just get it done, you have to spend a lot of time with a biro and hazarding a guess at what things mean when the advice won't be there till July. It's nice to know that me, being a type 1 diabetic with all my insulin coming from Denmark, might not receive it till way past its expiry date because a lorry driver spent three months asking someone in a toll booth what every tick box means. There's more admin for the rest of us too, which will keep us all on form, literally. European health insurance cards cease working on December the 31st this year, so you'll def have to fork out more for your travel insurance if travelling to Europe after then, but I'm sure insurance companies won't take advantage of this. Nah, that wouldn't be like them at all. Border control would now require you giving more details of your stay, showing your return ticket and that you have enough money, uh, as they don't want any economic migrants. So let's face it, based on the British economy at the moment, it's a tempting notion to cross the channel in search for any cash-in-hand work, picking fruit or veg. Oh, and it'll cost a ton more to use your phone in the EU, a bit like it did a few years ago till they made it easier and now they're making it harder again. Still, it isn't a holiday if you don't turn your phone off and get lost and have to sleep on the beach and get put into a Spanish prison for months, is it? 
If you want to take your pet abroad with you, you'll have a four-month process before they can be allowed to travel, meaning that therapy pets are now more stress-inducing than not. And of course, you can no longer live or work or maybe study in the EU, but I'm sure all of that was on the other side of the bus and we just couldn't see it. It was on the, on the other side. For Brits living abroad, much like EU citizens in Britain, they now have to apply for settled citizen status. And in some countries, they appear to have made the process pretty easy, but in other countries, much less so with much shorter application windows. Places like Spain have opted for a guarantee of expats' rights to stay if they already lived there before December 31st of this year. But a lot of the application process is online, so many elderly British expats or those without the internet may be missed out. On the plus side, Brexit is all about sovereignty and it'll be nice to have our own criminals back on British soil robbing our trains. Oh, and you might remember that Northern Ireland was promised unfettered trade between them and Great Britain. You remember that? When former Prime Minister and what happens if you drink nail varnish, Theresa May, gave what if the Spanish Inquisition looked heavily rained on, the DUP, a ton of dosh and promises of a lovely deal in order to vote for everything she did? Well, turns out they won't get so much of that. And while the UK government says trade between Northern Ireland and Great Britain won't change, the EU have to grant a concession, which they haven't done yet. So there's a chance Northern Ireland will have EU trade lords and have a whole ton of checks to trade with Great Britain. While Northern Ireland does more trade with the EU than Great Britain, most of its EU trade goes via British ports. So there's a chance that any trade will need to fill in 400 forms to get from Northern Ireland to Great Britain and then another 400 from Great Britain to the EU. So there you go. All sounds easy, right? And as though our post-Brexit future will be bright as long as you don't want to travel anywhere or eat or take medicine. But that is what taking back control is and it largely makes you realise why it's so nice delegating shit to other people. During the lockdown, lots of people took back control of their eating and washing up and childcare and all that, but now everyone's clamouring to go to restaurants and stick their kids back in school. Well, there won't be those options with Brexit. Our dirty dishes will very much be our own, piling up and difficult to ignore until we deal with them. Sovereignty. But hey, at least the billionaires will be fine, and that's all that matters. Right? And now, back to Ollie. Yeah, yeah, it's it's fascinating. I I I still I, when I was allowed to watch Friday Night Live as a kid, uh, that the the some of the things that really stuck with me were Ben Elton talking about his fridge, but also Mrs. Thatcher, all his stuff about Mrs. Thatcher. And I think it entirely formed my political opinion at a very young age. Uh, simply that program, um, it's it's quite incredible. Um, is there something about the you know one of the the things that I try to explain to people is that I think a big part of comedy is that we have to see outside the box or we have to see the alternative view. And we've had a right-wing government in this country for what feels like several millennia now. So the alternative view is is going to not be the same as theirs. You know, if, if we want to be the people that are, are the alternatives, are the sort of jesters, aren't we? Is it speaking truth to power, sort of what what you're meant to be doing with comedy? I think it is. And also, I, I, think, it, I think it's a bit rich when people say, oh, where are all the right-wing comedians? Because often it's a right-wing person, like, let's say, Richard Littlejohn or somebody saying it. And you kind of go, look, aren't you satisfied? You've got the vast majority of the press. You've kind of got BBC News now. You know, you've got huge swathes of, of, of the media are, are controlled by you. You also, you know, the right arguably is also in ways we don't fully understand yet, using new media to foot with democracy and, to, you know, micro-target people based on their Facebook profiles, as we know, through the whole Cambridge Analytica IQ thing. Aren't you happy? That you've got, you, you own practically everything. You own our ideas and most fields. Can't you just give us this one? Let us laugh at something. <laughs> yeah. Like, yes. like, 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 why do you need it to be? It's not like balance. Comedy's not about balance. Comedy's about what, like, you, Tina, when you go out on stage, you talk about the world from the way you see it. And that's your job. 
And that idea was established arguably in the 1950s and 60s by a wave of American comedians like Mort Sol, Lenny Bruce, Dick Gregory, people like that, who, you know, changed comedy to being much more, changed stand-up to be much more like what we recognise it now. It's, it's like, it's explaining what the world looks like from your perspective. And obviously you, you do it in a funny way because you're spotting what's weird and peculiar about the world, those contradictions, right? So when you go out in the world, that's your, your view that you're sharing. You know, and so it's not you. There's no onus on you to sort of turn around and go. But let's look at a different opinion. Let's talk about how great Boris Johnson is. That'd be weird if you did that. And okay, you could say, well, you can balance comedy by having people with different opinions. But actually, so many comedians aren't political anyway in their in their material. Not, I mean, in the broadest sense, yes. But I mean, specifically about politics, no. So, like this whole thing of where all the right wing comedians, it's a bit of a, it's just a lazy bit, a bit of journalistic thinking. Yeah, 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 and there's also that thing which uh, I'm sort of going to misquote uh, Frankie Boyle now, but he he talked to me once about the fact that you know all the people that always want him banned and always misquote his jokes and say that he's been awful are also the same newspapers that complain about cancel culture and universities sort of <laughs> cancelling people. And he says, "Well, what do you want? Which one is it that you want? Do you want me to be banned and everyone to be banned, or no one to be banned? What is the you know where's the where's the middle ground?" Absolutely. I mean, I think people on the right are the biggest snowflakes in the world. I mean, the, the the biggest, bar none, the biggest snowflake in the world is Donald Trump. He's notoriously thin-skinned. He's he's you know what? So it's 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 rich that 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 invective that they've come out with is 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 rich because it it's it's like a mirror image. It's like they're describing themselves. And I have to say, I went to an event like a discussion in January about kind of comedy in the age of. Trump and Brexit, but it was really about sort of censorship, and it was about the idea of comedians not being able to say anything because they're too scared because of oversensitive audiences and things like that. But I have to say, when I imparted the fact that comparing our club the day after the general election, I'd started into something and, and talk, started talking about Boris Johnson in unflattering terms, and somebody heckled me, like they weren't interested in that kind of restriction or that kind of bite back from audiences. Whereas I just sort of thought, well, that's Okay, that's that's that drunken guy at his Christmas party. That's his right to do that, and now I can put him down, and that's part of my job. But the, but but the, but what they were, I suppose my point about raising that thing is, in the event nobody particularly wanted to hear that because it didn't fit the narrative. The narrative being, oh well, you can't say this and you can't say that because of all these lefties, these snowflakes, kind of thing. So I was just going to say that you know uh, I could I could talk to you about satire for, forever. Um, what I wanted to ask you is obviously you work at a university, which I know because you used to be my lecturer. Um, but how are things in universities now? Are you quite worried about the future of higher education in the UK because you've you know that there were strikes um, before the pandemic hit? I'm very worried about the future of higher education in the UK. Uh, I think that universities have undergone significant change in the last decade uh the the amount of debt that young people have to rack up to to study is unconscionable and 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 it's all very well for people even middle of the road people say oh well you know there's some public benefit and there's some private benefit to the individual getting the degree uh, so therefore it should be shared between state and and uh, the individual. I actually think that it should be paid for by the state because you could say the exact same thing uh, you know, about it being some benefit to you, some benefit to society, uh, about schooling. We don't pay for schooling. Oh, well, posh people do, but no- normal, sane people don't, right? We, uh, you could say it about having an operation. If you, I, I broke my hip five years ago, I, I'm able to work again because of the NHS. 
that obviously has advantage to me because I'm able to earn money, but it also has advantage to the state because I'm a taxpayer and also I'm helping to educate people. So, so the argument to me is, is a no-brainer, but also um, the, 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 there are all kinds of questions you could raise about making uh, the standard fee for a degree course £9,000 a year. Then there's another thing they did, was they took the caps off. So basically what, what happens there is that successful universities could, take as, could hoover up as many students from the pool as they like, make it harder for the other people to get students and the fewer students you have the less money you have less money you have the harder it is to keep doing what you do and the more people have to be laid off and things like that so that's 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 the atmosphere going into the the pandemic then lockdown happens and you have a situation where within weeks we had to work out a way of how to deliver what we teach through zoom and other platforms and actually i have to say it was quite interesting to do that i mean i taught stand up workshops where there were people literally from three continents present you know because there was somebody there was somebody uh, in from taiwan who'd had to go home to her home country somebody from california who'd had to go home, home to her country and they were all able to be present with most of the students who were back home in various parts of the uk and actually although it wasn't as good as being able to do it in a room it it worked pretty well I think it's harder with something, let's say, I mean, I work in a drama department, it's hard, harder with, say, something like dance or physical theatre to do that via Zoom because, you know, the person might be in their bedroom. How are they going to do a plie or something, whatever they would do? I don't know. I'm not a dance person. Um, so I think, I, think, I think one thing is that I think, you know, if we have, it's very likely we'll have to use uh, platforms like the one we're speaking on right now uh, to deliver at least some of what we do in the autumn term. Now, what's that going to do? Well, it might mean that some students choose to defer and come next year where they think they can be back to teaching normally. Um, it might be that overseas students who make such an important financial contribution to the, to, to this, you know, to a university's ability to keep going can't come because the travel restrictions uh, it, it might, you know, it, the, 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 the risk is that we will hemorrhage students for this cycle. And that that it, it's possible that some universities might even have to close. Uh, if they don't have to close, it's very likely that they'll have to shed staff. Uh, also, having fewer resources, it might make it very difficult to uphold the level and quality of the education offered. I mean, obviously, I have to say, I hope that that will not happen, even if there is less money, because in my experience uh being an academic is a vocational job people do it because they love it and they believe in it and also what that means is that they often put in they go the extra mile you know they they put in more hours than they're paid for uh they do more they think around problems um and i mean I, I, okay I, this I offer myself as an example. That's terrible because it makes me sound like I'm bigging myself up. But just just to give you an example, so we had we had uh, a gig. So we had we had two nights of stand up booked, and uh, normally what happens is we get about a hundred people in, and uh, they're very excited because it's a student audience. They they're watching their friends perform. It's a brilliant night. It's great for the Gulbenkian because it's full and people are buying drinks and so on. It's great for us because it's a public event. Parents can come along. Just ordinary people can come along and watch the show. It's free to see the show. So it's, it's, it's just a lovely thing. Obviously, we couldn't do that because of lockdown. And so what we did instead was we got the students to submit videos of what they would have done. Now, 
the videos could be anything. It could be them performing to a tiny audience. If they were sharing a house, they could perform to their family or their housemates. They could perform, they could record themselves doing it to a small audience on Zoom. They could just record it to the camera. They did really interesting and creative things. But I was also aware that although that, that you know, that's the best they could do in the circumstances, I was also, also aware that they weren't getting that public facing aspect of what they were doing. So what I said to them was, you don't have to do this, but if you want to, I will put together a compilation of these and put it up on YouTube so that you've at least got some kind of public engagement with what you've done. Now, maybe about probably fewer than half of the students came forward to volunteer to do that. And it was a kind of representative sample in terms of kind of style and quality probably as well. And then what I did was I took like part of my afternoon in the weekend to to record me comparing them like in a very silly way and then my son uh edited them together and we put it up on youtube now that's been seen last time i looked by it would be like it's been it had over 300 views well they'd have had to only 200 if they'd done two nights at the gulbenkian so it's already been seen by more people but the point about that is i did that because i thought it was a nice thing to do it didn't have to do it it, it, I'd gone way beyond satisfying the university's requirements for what the students would have to do. But I also felt, well, these are students, there's some brilliant students doing this module. And I, and I think that uh, they should be recognised for what they've done. And what a nice thing to be able to do. So I put my time into doing that. And I think that, you know, what, what I hope is that I'm representative. And I'm sure, well, I, I, I know that, you know, that I, I think the same of my colleagues. They would do, they would go that extra mile to make sure that their students have a, that our students have a, have a, a satisfactory experience. But the, still, the fear is that um, there's going to be a lot of disruption. Um, and the, the worst case scenario, universities will close. Probably the best case scenario is that there will be redundancies. It's, I'm guessing morale amongst sort of staff must be really low. It's pretty bad. Um, I've been to Zoom meetings, union meetings, for example, where I felt like topping myself at the end of it, you know, because, you, you know, it's very stressful having to work from your front room. Like, I'll just show you this. So you won't hear it on the podcast, but that's, this is my desk. It's too far. This is my office oh, wow. space. It's, it's our front room. It's two folding desks that I have to set up every morning and take down at night. It's my laptop on a stand so I can work with it. It's like I had to buy one of these, a, a removable key keyboard and stuff so that I could actually work like a bought this so I could do the microphone so I could do things like this um that's doing all the normal stuff having the normal pressure but doing it from your house without the normal human interaction that you get is really really stressful having to invent new ways of doing things the whole time having those pressures that don't go away having to keep going uh, with all the other worrying things about, you know, if I go out to the supermarket, am I going to come back and get an illness that could kill me or, or you know, send me to hospital? It's very, very stressful. Also dealing with the stress that students are feeling. Students are feeling enormous stress. I think, I think there's something terrible about the way our society is organised that's made a gen- generations of young people have higher than previous levels of anxiety it's so normal for students to experience depression or anxiety now and i think there are all kinds of reasons for that but now put put lockdown into the mix and it's you know you have to be there for those students you have to be prepared to if somebody's having a wobble to talk to them for an hour on the phone or you know via skype or whatever because they need you you know they're worried they're really scared um 
so so yes and then that that then that has a knock-on on yourself because you know you're stressed but you're also having to be the strong one for the people who are in your care as it were is it i mean you know i i, I fully uh fully sympathize with the university i hope they don't close but i also do have a a kind of sympathy for those students that are saying they don't want to pay their fees now they want their fees back because they can't attend the university that they paid for and, and you know a big part for me at university was was uh well i mean i mean goodness without your teacher i wouldn't do what i did but you know also the life and i still got friends that i met at university i still very close friends with many of them and and the independence that it gives you and i suppose without that they are missing out on a large part of what it's about yeah i mean i i, I very much hope that that some of that at least could be saved even during lockdown i know that there were a lot of student societies who were still doing things but virtually uh during lockdown i also know that things have started to ease up a bit so for example the library has reopened albeit with heavy restrictions uh i i know that campus never fully shut so the buildings were shut but things like i think the campus shop stayed open for those students who were living on campus and things like that and i know that certainly different universities have different ideas about how things are going to work in the autumn but Kent is very much hoping that at least some of the teaching will be face to face so for example there are things like where you could do uh, lectures online uh, but seminars and workshops and things could take place in larger spaces on uh, on campus or for example you could do a thing where you you have shorter hours with the students but with fewer students uh, so in other words instead of let's say doing a class where you have 16 in a room for three hours you might have two one and a half hour classes with seven or eight students that kind of thing and certainly I've had to fill in a a form to say which aspects of my teaching do I think need to be done um, in person as opposed to online Mm. so I I, I certainly think we don't know exactly what's happening because the obviously things are changing all the time the university has a a committee that's looking at uh, you know what its reaction is going to be when the new year starts and obviously i do have sympathy for students who feel that they they want their fees back but i also have to say we have um tried to provide the students with the experience as close as we've been able to do to the students in their final um uh, sort of terms of, of study that they would have had anyway uh and also, I'd have to say it's quite an interesting thing that the, the last class that I taught of the spring term was for a thing called Creative Project, where students at the end of their degree do a show that is that, that is their project. They've determined what they want to do and what their approach is going to be. And it's, you know, we uh, oversee them and give them advice, but it's really what they want to do. And obviously, that was something we had to do through alternative forms of submission this year rather than doing the festival they would normally have done but the point is I was doing my last class of the term and it was Friday afternoon last day of term and I had I think 18 people 19 people in my group and we finished the class but we still had 20 minutes left on the zoom and I said look I know we finished and also by the way I'd invite them to bring snacks and drinks for the (laughs) class as well because I said it's the end of term and I said look you don't have to stay. There's no requirement to stay, but we've still got 20 minutes on the Zoom. If everyone wants to stay and just have a chat, you'd be very welcome to do so. And at least half of them did. That's nice. Because because of that thing of wanting to be social. And I was really glad that I'd done that because it was nice for me and it seemed to be nice for them. And we could just have a bit of a laugh before term ended. So I, I suppose the point is we've tried to make things as good as they can possibly be, even with all the restrictions. Yeah. 
And that's what we will continue to do. Great, great. And also there's a part of me that thinks Freshers Week with social distancing might make it a lot less regrettable for many people. So could be could be quite a way, good way forward. Wear masks, it might make it yeah. better for some of you. <laughs> um, it's going to save... <laughs> It's going to save that thing of having to avoid somebody for the following well, exactly, three years. Exactly, exactly. Um, right, Ollie, thank you so much for talking to me. Um, one last thing, which is that what well, I ask all the guests on the show, which is simply that apart from yourself, um, is there anybody that you'd recommend listeners um, check out, read up on, either to do with comedy and, and in terms of uh, politics, which places society, or, or universities and higher education? Like, who are the people that you enjoy following for information? Oh, that's a really good question. Yeah. I mean, uh, my colleague Sophie Quirk has written some brilliant stuff on uh, comedy. Her most recent book is about what she calls the new alternative. So looking at things like Alternative Comedy, Memorial Society, Josie Long. I mean, the the stuff about um, Sophie Duca was really me piggybacking on Sophie, really, because Sophie's researched some of the stuff that Sophie Duca is doing. So she's very good. My colleague Sean May has written a great book about philosophy of comedy um sharon lockyer at brunel is a sociologist who's done great stuff on comedy um there's somebody called dimmy russell at cardiff business school who's done really interesting things about the, the way that startups organize as a business uh in further afield there's some there's some loads of brilliant people bet crafting in america ian Brody. um you know again over the, over the other side of the atlantic there's some brilliant people doing stuff on comedy right now uh, you know, from the academic viewpoint, I, when I started doing stand-up, I was, you know, from you know as an academic study, I was really the only person who was doing it. Now there are loads of people all around the world, and that's good to see. Yeah, you started it. You kicked it off. The original trendsetter. Good work. I'm the champion. <laughs> That was Oliver Double, um, who you can find on Twitter at Oliver Double. Um, his latest book, Alternative Comedy, 1979, then the reinvention of British stand-up is available to buy now. But Ollie has told me to warn you that it's very expensive as it's an academic book, uh, despite being one about fun things. Um, however, if you can get it for a library or educational institute, please do. And if you can afford its hefty price tag, um, Ollie said the more people who buy it now, it'll increase the likelihood that it'll be released in a more affordable format soon. I'll release that extra chat on a bonus pod soonish, I promise. Um, one area we didn't cover at all is why, despite comedy being open to all, it still isn't diverse enough. And the main reason for that is it's becoming harder and harder to survive on it if you're starting out, meaning only those who already have tons of dosh and inheritance and don't have to worry about rent uh, can take the time to work on the five and ten minute sets and Ed Fringe shows and gig lots instead of working. Um, and what's happening now will likely only make that divide worse and mean there's even less diverse voices on the scene. So you'll just see a whole ton of stand-up sets talking about oh the problem i had parking my merc and it'll get really tedious so uh do check out the live comedy association who are at livecomedyassociation.co.uk and at live comedy uk on twitter for all their updates on how to help please please help um i'm aware all my guests for the last three weeks have been straight white blokes um but hey someone's got to give them space to talk right jokes um i'm afraid next week's might be similarly undiverse but it is a very good guest indeed um and then it is a summer break however when this show returns i would love to balance things out again as i do try so please tell me who you'd like to hear from what subjects you'd like to hear about and i will endeavor to mix things up a bit too uh drop me a line at Parpol bro on twitter the partly political broadcast facebook group the contact page on partly political broadcast.co.uk or email me at partly political broadcast at gmail.com or you can get hackers to breach the twitter accounts of some of the world's biggest billionaires and then tweet out exactly what guests you'd like to see only to realize that by not making it obvious they'd been hacked by saying something as equally as unrealistic as i want to support my community everyone would just think they'd recommended an interviewee and in which case they'd instantly lose all credibility and i won't contact them and then you'll get arrested as always, it's probably just best to email, isn't it? 
And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Um, of course, here we are at the end, and there you are, patiently waiting, bowl in hand, for your Parpol Bro hot political gossip fact. And this week, with Boris Johnson promising that the entire coronavirus will be over by Christmas, what is the worst broken promise a politician has ever made? No, it wasn't former Gambian president and man always dressed like the little chef, Yaya Jama, who promised to rule for a billion years and then in 2017 conceded to his opponent. He had already been president for 21 years, though, and that is the sort of time after which you learn not to say things a two-year-old might. Uh, nor was it US president and missing link George H.W. Bush who said, read my lips, no new taxes, and then raise taxes. But to be fair, if anyone had actually read his lips rather than listening to the words, they'd have got no new taxes, which is a very different promise indeed. No, in fact, the worst broken promise by any politician ever was Boris Johnson when he said it was do or die for Britain to leave the EU on October 31st, 2019, and that he would die in a ditch if it didn't. Uh, and then it didn't, and he selfishly avoided all ditches and ruined Britain even worse. Then again, ditches are made to hold water, the exact opposite of any Johnson's ideas or promises, so maybe he felt intimidated. And that's the Parpol Bro Hot Podcast fact this week. If you enjoyed that or it made you so angry you stripped walls of your fingernails and thus saved you money on decorators, then please do tell everyone you know to tune into this show, give us a lovely review on any of those podcast app places and pop a quid or two into the code for your Patreon if you can. Muchos gracias to Acast, my brother last sceptic, Cat Day and Mushy Bees. And this will be back next week when the Russia report reveals that all along Boris Johnson was actually the largest of a group of Russian dolls and that baby photo of Wilfred was actually just the smallest Boris removed from the middle. Bye! This week's show was sponsored by... Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.